want to invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to spend one more Sunday morning in Philippians before shifting gears a little bit until the new year, and we're going to pick things up uh, in January. So we're looking at chapter 2, verses 1 to 4 in our study uh, this morning. I want to encourage you to think for a moment of a time uh, in your life, perhaps you can, maybe this will readily come to mind, where you sought to persuade, you sought to con- convince someone, you, you made a passionate appeal to someone to think a particular way, to act in a particular way. I want to share one such occasion in my own life. Uh, a number of years ago, about three and a half years ago now, you blessed me with the gift of a sabbatical. Uh, some of you know that my family and I, we, we purchased an old motorhome and we did a road trip all the way to Newfoundland and back. And a uh, marvelous gift. And, and along the way, we stopped in Ontario where I grew up. We spent some time in Toronto. And one of the places we went and visited was the Hockey Hall of Fame. Now, I know some of you would have very little interest in that. But it was actually a fascinating place, even for my wife, who's not a particularly big hockey fan. Uh, many of you know that, that I, I am a sports fan, a hockey fan. A Maple Leaf fan, thank you for your grace. Um, and as a father of three boys, I have had uh, varying levels of success at influencing my sons. My oldest son would say he's not a huge hockey fan, but he would identify the Toronto Maple Leafs as his favorite team. My youngest son is the biggest hockey fan of them all, and he, uh, he feels with me. So um, the devastation of last year's playoffs, I mean, he's, he's right there with me. My middle son, Nathaniel, uh, however, not a big hockey fan, but he, he has resisted uh, loving the Leafs at some level. He would say the Leafs are my second favorite team, but not first. He's born and raised in Edmonton, and so if he had to pick a team, it would be the Oilers, uh, much to your delight. Well, we were visiting the Hockey Hall of Fame, and at the end of that museum, as is the case in most museums, there is a gift shop, and Nathaniel found uh, some ball caps for various teams. It was kind of a denim, same style for different teams. And he, he said, Dad, would you buy me this cap? And he had an Oilers hat. And I looked at the rack, and there was a beautiful leaf one just like it. And I said, I'll buy you this one. I'll buy you the Toronto Maple Leaf one. He's like, Dad, I don't want that one. I want this one. And I tried to persuade him. I appealed to him. I said, do this for me. You'd bless my heart, son. Let me buy you the leaf one. I don't want the leaf one. I want the Oilers one. I'm like, come on, it would really make me happy. It would give me great joy. I'd gladly buy you that one. And he insisted he wanted the Oilers one. And, and I had this memory of uh, when he was much younger, not one of my best moments as a dad. He, he told me as a little boy, I'm going to cheer for the Ottawa Senators. Well, that broke my heart. And I said, I said he wasn't allowed to. In fact, I made him cry. And so I had that memory, and I thought, I can't push this too far. And so I relented, and I bought him an Oilers hat. And it wasn't that long after. I'm sure he waited till we were probably in our vehicle driving again. But he said, you know, Dad, I would have taken a leaf one. I'm like, oh, I should have tried a little harder. I should have appealed a little bit more passionately. This morning, we're looking at a few verses. You know, I, I, I have some good leaf jokes. Like, uh, when I die, I, I want to ask the Leafs to be my pallbearers so that they can let me down one last time. 
Where was I? Oh yeah, Philippians. We're going to be looking at a few verses in Philippians this morning uh, where Paul makes a passionate appeal to this church. Uh, obviously not about something so trivial as a ball cap, but, but about something of great consequence. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to follow along as I read Philippians 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. I want to ask four questions with you this morning, four questions of this text. What is the desire? Uh, what is the problem? What is required? And what is the end goal? What is desired? What is the problem? What is required? And what is the end goal? So we begin with the question, what is desired? The original manuscript and the original manuscript verses 1 to 4 form uh, a single fairly complex sentence uh, just a series of modifying clauses after modifying clause after modifying clause the NIV and other English translations breaks this up into separate verses or separate sentences to help us be a little more clear on what Paul is is getting at uh, it, the paragraph begins with the word therefore, and I know this is cheesy, I've said it before, but when we see a therefore, uh, it's good to ask the question what the therefore is there for. Uh, the therefore here is linking what Paul is about to say to what he has just said, so let me remind you of what has preceded these verses. Uh, we know that the Apostle Paul is writing these verses to a church in Philippi, a church that he planted about a dozen years earlier. It was the first church in Europe. And he went there, he established his church, he has a personal relationship with uh, some of the people in the church, probably there are others that he doesn't know, but, but he is, uh, this church is in Philippi, this Roman colony in Europe. Second, Paul is writing from prison. And we know that Paul is in chains, and uh, he is awaiting trial before Caesar. He thinks, he expects that he will be released, but he does not know that for certain. Uh, but if he re is released, he expects as he expects, he will be able to go to the Philippians and help them progress in their faith. Uh, lastly, Paul is writing to them in light of two live issues. Uh, one, they are experiencing external opposition, uh, and they are suffering because of it, and so he's writing to encourage them in the face of that. And secondly, the church itself is internally experiencing some tensions uh, that are threatening its well-being as the church. Last Sunday, we looked at the closing verses of chapter 1, where Paul challenged the Philippians to live as citizens, not citizens of Rome, they are a Roman colony, but to, to live as citizens of heaven, worthy of, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is, he called them to oneness, to unity, that they would stand firm in one spirit, and that they would contend together, side by side, for the faith. That is for the advance of the gospel without being afraid, even in the face of opposition, even in their experience of suffering, that they would contend together as one for the faith. He shared these words toward the end of our text, for it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for them. He says, come what may, 
stand firmly together and contend together for the gospel. So the therefore of our text here in chapter 2 connects what Paul is about to say to what he said last week. Namely, his call for them to stand firm as one, in one Spirit, in the Holy Spirit. This is a call for them to be united. United as the people of God in the city of Philippi. Now, when we look at our text, that may not be immediately obvious to us uh, as we look. In fact, our text has a single, like the passage last week where the, the one command was live as citizens. In, in our text, there's one command, and the command, the imperative of our text actually isn't about unity, not explicitly. It's about Paul's joy. Look, in verse 2, then make my joy complete. Make my joy complete. That's the command. That's the imperative of our text. Uh, That is at the center, uh, that would seem to be the center of this passage. And, And we could be forgiven if at first we perceive that to be a little puzzling, even if we see that as Paul being a little bit self-absorbed maybe, like, hey, it's as if he's saying to them, hey, Philippians, do what I want you to do so that I'm happy. You know, buy, buy the Leafs cap. Nathaniel, do this for my joy. Not really worried about your joy. Do this for my joy. I mean, Paul says, make my joy complete. That's the command. That's the imperative here. But, but is that really what's going on? As I think will become clear, that is certainly not at the center of the text. Paul's joy is the desired fruit that he he wants. It is the command here, but it's not the primary matter. Moses Silva says this, It is plain here that the primary thought of the whole passage focuses not on Paul's personal yearnings for joy. What does lie at the heart of these verses is Paul's longing for the Philippians to stand as one, to be unified in one spirit for the sake of the gospel. Here's how Gordon Fee expresses it, that Paul urges one thing, that they get along together in their struggle for the gospel, especially in the face of opposition. Paul's desire, what lies at the very the center of this text, is Paul's desire for unity in the church, that they would stand as one in the one spirit, that they would together stand and contend for the gospel. Let's look at the series of conditional phrases that our passage opens with. If you have any encouragement from being united in Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion. It's just phrase after phrase after phrase here. Gordon Fee suggests that that within these phrases we may legitimately detect a Trinitarian structure, and I would suggest that may well be true. Paul speaks often of Father, Son, and Spirit. And here he speaks about being united with Christ, knowing the love of God, and then the fellowship, this common experience of the Spirit. So that would seem like a reasonable thing that even here in, in his passionate appeal to them that he is speaking of God, the triune God. Here's what we read. Here's how Paul, the language that Paul uses at the end of 2 Corinthians, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So even in this appeal, he is potentially pointing to God's triune nature, saying if you're united in Christ, you know the love of of God and and common experience of the Spirit. He's just building up his appeal. But regardless, Paul is piling up phrase after phrase upon phrase, pointing to the reality of their experience of their relationship with God. 
United with Christ, the, the, the oneness they know in the Spirit, loved. He's pointing to their experience of their relationship with God as the grounds for their unity. I would suggest here that what Paul is saying here at some level is, is less about communicating some particular little nuances as it is Paul employing this rhetoric, this passionate appeal uh, that they would be unified. He's pointing to, to their experience of God, that God, they are loved, that they are united in Christ, that they have the Spirit of, of Christ, and, and that they are to be one, like-minded. Paul is appealing to them. He is passionately appealing to them to be one, to be united, like-minded. Now, being like-minded does not mean that we will agree with one another on everything, precisely, but it means to have a certain disposition, a, a unity of purpose, to have unity with regards to the gospel and our heavenly citizenship that he spoke about last week, that we would be one, that we would be united in Christ, in the Spirit, that we would be, be contending side by side as one for the gospel. That is the one thing that Paul desires, ultimately. Uh, desired by him and desired by God whose word this is. This desire for unity, this desire for the unity of the body, unity of the church for the sake of the gospel. I want you to remember a few weeks back, over two successive weeks, Paul spoke about his joy. In verses 12 to about 19, Paul spoke about the fact that despite the fact that he was in chains, in prison, that his, he was filled with joy because even in those circumstances, the gospel was advancing. God had opened the door for him to proclaim Christ to uh, many of the soldiers who guarded him. Remember, four-hour shifts, he was chained to a Roman soldier over the course of two years. Not only the soldiers, not only the guards, but also to those in Caesar's household. He has had the opportunity to proclaim Christ, and so he's filled with joy. Not only that, but through his imprisonment, the believers in Rome have also found this newfound boldness, and they too are preaching Christ. And so even in chains, Paul speaks of his joy. And then in the, the week after that, the text that picks things up halfway through verse 19, he says that he will continue to rejoice even no matter what happens. Remember, he said, he said that he expects to be released, and if he's released from prison, he will be working for Christ, continue the ministry for Christ. But if he's not released, if he's executed, then he gets to be with Christ. So either way, whether he's released and serves Christ, or he, he is executed and he gets to be with Christ, he wins either way. It's all about Jesus, and so he's joyful there too. Paul has spoken a lot about his joy. And then now... He's already said that he's filled with joy. Here he speaks about his joy being made complete. What exactly is he getting at when he tells the Philippians, when he commands them the imperative to make my joy complete? Paul's point is this. There remains one thing that is preventing him from experiencing the fullness of joy when it comes to the Philippians. And that is the internal tension going on in their body. Uh, this tension, this dissension is threatening their unity. It is hindering their oneness. And consequently, it is impacting their ability as a church to contend together as one 
for the sake of the gospel. Their lack of unity, uh, to whatever degree that disunity is already impacting the church, and, and it's important to note that it's not, it's not a complete gong show yet, but there is this internal tension, there is some disunity, it is threatening, it is hindering. If left unchecked, it will, it will grow into this full-blown crisis. And it will impact negatively their ability as God's people, as citizens of heaven living in Philippi, to proclaim Christ. Uh, it will hinder their ability to advance the gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so already it is threatening. Already it's there simmering under the surface. And so Paul's joy is hindered because their joy in Christ and their ability to advance the gospel and to live as citizens of heaven is under threat. Brings us to our second question. What is the problem? Now, obviously, in general terms, we've already spoken that the problem is this disunity in their church, but that that is risking their church further, their, their church health, and risking hindering their ability to advance the gospel. But, but how exactly? What exactly is the problem? Verse 3 begins to answer those questions for us. There we read, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Here the Apostle Paul puts his finger on what he knows, or, or what he at least suspects. Remember, uh, Epaphroditus has just arrived in Rome for Paul, or sorry, arrived back with the Philippians. He went to visit Paul. He brought the gift from the Philippians that we will, Paul will speak about in chapter 4. He brought that monetary gift to Paul in prison. He got sick, almost died. He'll, we'll read about that coming up. But he has gone back now so, to the Philippians with this letter. So here's what we know, that, that he came to Paul, and not only would he have brought this monetary gift, but he would have shared a report. He would have he would have updated Paul on what was going on. And so Paul knows. He knows about this internal tension. This is how he knows that, that they are suffering from external opposition and internally that there's this tension, this disunity that is threatening. Now we don't know how many specifics Paul knows beyond what is evidenced in this letter. And he's going to talk later on about two women who aren't getting along in the church. There, there are some specifics he knows. But here he identifies two things, two attitudes that are contributing to the problem. First is selfish ambition. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Gordon Fee says, selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness, where self-interest and self-aggrandizement at the expense of others primarily dictate values and behavior. Self-ambition, selfish ambition stands at the heart of human fallenness. It entails a jealousy, a resentfulness towards other rivalry, wanting what someone else has, Wanting something for yourself. Frank Thielman describes it as a greedy attempt to gain the upper hand. It would seem clear that this attitude is present in the Philippian church. There is selfish ambition. People who are wanting to get ahead, who are wanting that place of honor, or whatever it precisely looks like. There are those who are jealous, and there's this rivalry. Another second characteristic which Paul labels here, vain conceit. This is pride, but it's more than simply pride. It is a false pride, an empty pride, a pride that has no grounds, that is completely baseless. And Fee says, it's used to describe those who think too highly of themselves, not those who might have grounds for glory, but those whose glory is altogether baseless. The, the problem in Philippi is that some in the church 
have taken their eyes off of Jesus and the gospel. They're jealous of others. They are resentful of others. They are trying to get ahead. They, they think that they, are, that they are hot stuff, spiritually speaking. They, they're trying to be the heroes of their own story. But here's the truth that Scripture reveals to us. There is only one hero, and his name is Jesus. We, we come to Christ spiritually bankrupt. We come with empty hands, needing grace, needing mercy, unable to fix what is wrong. And so we come in that posture of need. And yet here there is selfish ambition, a desire to get ahead in whatever way. And there is this empty pride. These things, these attitudes ought to have no place in our lives or in the church of Jesus Christ. They ought not to shape us. They ought not to inform our lives and our life together. And when they do, they bring destruction. Things in Philippi have not completely gone off the rails, but there are problems that Paul sees and he speaks into that. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Uh, just this week, I finished listening to a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Some of you perhaps have heard of it. Mars Hill was a church in Seattle. It grew to 15,000 members, multiple campuses, both throughout Washington and other states. And then at the end of 2014, it collapsed almost overnight. I would contend that some of these things, selfish ambition, vain conceit, were part of the problem. See, Paul understands that these attitudes of the heart, if left unchecked, will bring serious trouble to the church of Philippi. Things have not gone completely off the rails yet, but if they don't deal with these now, they are headed for a crisis. That is, of course, true not only for the church in Philippi, but for every church, every community of believers. These are problematic attitudes, and they ought not to shape our lives individually or corporately. And so when we recognize them, because we are not beyond them, so when we recognize them, we need to fall on our knees in repentance. We need to confess our sin. We need to confess when our motives, when our hearts go wrong. We need to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I recognize this. And we need to invite the Holy Spirit to transform us, that we might reflect the character of Christ, that we might live faithfully as citizens of heaven. Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Third, what is required? If those attitudes are ones we are to avoid, selfish ambition and vain conceit, uh, those are not to characterize our lives or our community as God's people. What attitudes should characterize us moving forward? Well, Paul continues in verse 3, rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. It's worth noting that in the Greco-Roman world into which Paul wrote these words, humility was not seen as a virtue. It was not seen as something that was good. It was actually looked down upon. It was a shortcoming, a vice, if you will. 
And so Paul here, in calling the church to humility, is in fact calling them to be radically countercultural. The, the, the term humility in the Old Testament denotes a lowliness in the sense of a creatureliness, as in understanding that we are creatures, that God is the creator. Uh, I've shared with you before the, the notion of what it means to the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is to understand, to know who God is, that God is almighty, that he is holy, that he is righteous, and to know that we are not, to know who we are, that we are fallen, that we are sinful, that we are in great need. It, to, to live in the fear of the Lord is to live with a right understanding of who God is and who we are living in relationship with him. It's kind of this notion, this humility is to know that God is the creator, that he is the almighty one, that we are creatures. And so we live rightly with that in mind, with that understanding. Now it's important to note that this is not a call to some sort of false humility or false modesty just to bless your hearts. Let's think for a moment about Connor McDavid who plays for the Oilers. If Connor McDavid in an interview were to say, well, really, I'm not that good, we'd all go, what are you talking about? He's a really good hockey player, right? Probably the best hockey player. Probably, I'll say this, probably better than anyone on my team. Right? So it would be false humility for him to say, yeah, I'm just kind of average. No, you're not. So it, he, he's, he's not. So this isn't calling us to some kind of false humility where we denigrate the gifts and abilities that God has given us. I mean, we are all created in His image after all, and God by His Spirit equips us. And so it's not this sense of false modesty. It is about this accurate understanding of who we are and recognizing even that the ways in which God has gifted us or used us, that that is a work of God's grace in our lives so that ultimately He gets the glory, not us. True humility ultimately is not self-focused at all. True humility looks to the others, values the others, concerns itself with the others. What is best for them? What do they need? How can I help them flourish? Fee says, genuinely Christian behavior means seeking not your own good, but that of others. True humility is others-focused, loving them, caring for them, serving them, helping them, helping them grow in Christ, helping them flourish and become all that Christ wants. That is what is to characterize us as the people of God. That is what is to characterize us as a community of the redeemed. This humility that puts the interest, the well-being, the good of others. Look around. Real practically, what, what is good for that brother or sister sitting next to you or behind you or in front of you, we are called to live that out, to care for them, to put their interests ahead of what we want. And we need to recognize here something that I think is so important for us to see, and that is the emphasis on community. It is so easy for us to, to think in terms of ourselves individualistically. I, I think I've shared this before. Uh, David Foster Wallace, uh, he's a late uh, author, English professor. He shares a, a, a story, a joke, I don't know what to call it, what you will. Uh, two fish, two young fish swimming along, and an older fish swims past them going the other way. And the older fish says to the younger fish, how's the water? And the two younger fish look at each other and go, what's water? That's us. 
we live in a culture that, that profoundly impacts us and, and pushes us to be very self-focused, to, to be very individualistic in life in ways that we don't even recognize. We need to understand that Christ is calling us here to an attitude that has us looking at others, not to ourselves. And I think it's worth pausing for a moment to think about the ways in which our Western culture is pushing us and shaping us and encouraging us to think about ourselves and to think individualistically. And we even do this in our faith. We, we think about just me and Jesus. And yes, we come to Christ individually. We repent of our sin. We trust in Jesus. But we're, we're not only brought into a relationship with Jesus, we're brought into a relationship with Christ and with His people. The Christian life is lived in community. There's no such thing, biblically speaking, as a Lone Ranger Christian. And so we need to understand this. How is our culture shaping us? I want you to think for a moment about the social pressure put on people today. I think particularly for young people growing up today, but this is true for all, to create your own identity, to determine your own meaning and purpose, to figure out who you will be. This tremendous pressure, there's, there's no thought to saying, hey, how can you best serve others with your life? It's about how can you have the greatest life? What is, what is your identity going to be? Think about advertising and the messages it communicates to us daily on the radio or TV or internet or billboards. It's about what you deserve, what you need to, to have the, the, the life, the good life now. Think about the impact of social media where, where everyone has a voice, but we can easily slip into a sense of vanity that just because we can say something, we should. That it will be helpful or good. Our Western culture has formed us, is forming us into people who think about self. And here Jesus challenges that. He says, in humility, think of others. In humility, care for the interests of others. Eyes off of yourself. That's what we're called to. Here, we are confronted with this challenge to reorient our lives away from self, away from self-interest, from self-selfishness as those who are in Christ to be focused rather on others. What is best for them? What is in their interests? How can I help them flourish? We are, in fact, to put on the character of Christ. That's where Paul will take us next. In January, when we return, we will come to this great poem in chapter 2 where we are called to take on the mindset of Christ. Christ who humbled Himself. Christ who left heaven and took on the nature of a servant. Christ who came and suffered in our place, bearing the penalty that we deserve so that we might be adopted as daughters and sons. I want to speak for a moment to anyone who is with us today online or here. If you are not a Christian, if you have never repented of your sins and put your trust in Jesus, maybe you have a lot of questions and you, you don't really understand this thing called Christianity, I, I want to make something clear to you. I want you to know 
that Christianity is not a self-improvement project. It's not. This is not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. This is not about cleaning yourself up. This is about recognizing that without Christ, you and I stand under God's coming judgment. The Bible tells us that we have all rebelled. We've, we've all gone our own way. We've all lived as our own gods, small g. That we have disobeyed God who made us, who made us for a relationship with Him. And He, he calls us to come to Him. But we can't fix what's broken. And so God in His love sent His Son. God put on flesh. Jesus came and lived here on this earth. And Jesus lived a life of complete submission. Jesus lived a life of perfect obedience. And what the Bible tells us is that when we come to Him and we cast ourselves upon Him and we say, Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. When we recognize our rebellion and we turn from it and we put our hope in Jesus that we are washed, we are cleansed, we are forgiven. We are made new. Not only forgiven our sin, but in fact we are credited with Christ's perfect obedience so that we are, we are forgiven and we are declared righteous. Our, our account is filled up with the righteousness of Jesus. We are adopted as daughters and sons of the King, of God Almighty. We are made alive. We are redeemed. Christianity is a rescue story in which Jesus is the hero. And so if you are struggling with your own brokenness. And I know, whoever you are, you recognize if you're honest that you, you don't have it all together. And I just want to say, you don't need to. You just need to come to Jesus. You need to come to Jesus who became a servant for you out of love for you. He humbled Himself and He came so that we might enter into a relationship with God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I want you to know that. That out of His interest in you, Jesus came. And we are to, to adopt that same mindset. To not live for ourselves, but the interests of others. What is good for my brother, for my sister, for this person who does not yet know Jesus? Fourth, what is the goal, the end goal? Paul here is passionately appealing to the Philippians and to us for our oneness, for our unity as the people of God, as citizens of heaven living in this present world, that we would live the life of the future, that we would live as citizens of heaven worthy of the gospel in light of what is true, that we would stand firm in one spirit, that we would be able to contend together as one for the sake of the gospel. As expressed here in the middle of these verses by means of the imperative of our passage to make joys, Paul's joy complete. That's his goal. He, he wants the Philippians, he, he makes this personal appeal, make, make my joy complete, but it's not about him ultimately. He's, he's calling them to unity. He's calling them to oneness. And his desire to have his joy complete through seeing them do that is hardly a selfish thing, a self-centered desire. No, Paul is already filled with joy because the gospel is advancing, because Christ is proclaimed through him, through the Romans, through the Philippians. He is filled with joy. And now he says, make my joy complete. 
by dealing with this disunity thing, by being one in the Spirit. For Paul, the end goal, this is all about Jesus. It is all about his joy in Jesus. It is all about living for Jesus, proclaiming Jesus, seeing Christ proclaimed everywhere through him and now through the Philippians. And he sees their disunity as something that is hindering that. And so his call, his command, make my joy complete, isn't ultimately about him. It's about Christ being proclaimed in word and in deed by the church that stands together, united in Christ for Christ. That's the end goal. That's what drives Paul's passion here. And the strife in the church, the disunity, is threatening. It is hindering. I'm sure probably all of you could share stories of disunity in the church. Our own story here at Sunrise is a story where there's lots of that. Christine and I have been here for just over 20 years, and there were a lot of years in the beginning where there was lots that was not well. And by God's grace, He carried us through that. But the reality is when the church is divided... When the church fails to stand as one, our mission to make Jesus known, to proclaim Jesus, to advance the gospel is hindered. And that is Paul's concern that this church in Philippi not let this disunity take root and grow, but that they would deal with it, that it would be put to bed, and that they would stand as one for the sake of Christ, to proclaim Christ, to see the gospel of Christ advance in Philippi. That, the, that his joy would not be diminished. That their witness would not be hindered. I want to leave us with a question this morning. What would the church look like? What would the church look like across Canada? What, what would our church look like if, if we were more truly characterized by the content of Paul's passionate appeal here? That we would say, Lord Jesus, root out selfish ambition. R- root out pride, vain conceit. Transform our hearts Grant us each a humility that says, I'm going to look to what is best for others. What if, what if the content of Paul's appeal really, truly, deeply shaped the church today? We can look around. Churches all around us are being divided. And, and that's not a new thing, but it is a present thing, and it grieves the heart of God. He calls us to oneness. He calls us to embrace the heart of Christ, the character of Christ, that we would be one, like-minded, a people united for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the glory of Christ's name and our joy.
May Christ so work in us. Let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this call. And Jesus, we thank You for the Gospel in which we stand, the good news that we can come in our brokenness to You and receive mercy. And we thank You, Father, for the gift of Your Spirit. And we ask, come Holy Spirit, work in us, shape us, conform us, that we might be women and men who would reflect the content of this appeal, that we would stand as one for the sake of Your name, Jesus, the glory of Your name and the advance of Your gospel in this world. We pray this, Jesus, in Your name. Amen.